now that I look back, I think I was being prepared for prison from a young age. For you to understand that, I'm going to have to go back in family history just for, just for a second. My grandfather was born in 1912 in Redford, Texas. That's right on the border, the Big Bend Valley. And uh, during the Depression, him and his brothers made beer and moonshine and sold it. So they, they were okay. You know, I've, I've seen pictures in the early 30s, mid-30s of the family. And uh, they weren't hurting, man. They were dressed nice. Suits, women in big long dresses, bonnets. And uh, so there, there was illegal activity in our family, is what I'm trying to say, since way back. My great-grandfather, he died while my grandfather and his brothers were fairly young. Uh, uh, accident out in the fields. He was a rancher and a farmer. He got hurt, and internal bleeding, and he died. So the boys had to fend for themselves and for the family, and they did what they had to do. You know, I grew up hearing these stories. I grew up hearing these stories of hardship and sacrifice and and hard work and. But there was always that element of illegal activity in this story somewhere, you know. So that was the norm. That was, I don't know if you can understand that, but that was normal. Here's a good example. So as I was growing up, my grandfather had a lot of friends. They really respected him. He owned a bar a lot of the times, too, as I was growing up. So we congregate there, and, you know, I met a lot of his friends. I listened to a lot of the men, the way they spoke to him. That's where I learned to shoot pool, too. But I'd listen to these men talk to him, and, and I'd see them, and, and I'd catch glimpses of pistols and waistbands, and I'd hear these stories about these men, and so it was all normal to me. Well, there were a few different men as I was growing up, and when I turned 18 years old, they pulled me to the side and said, well, you're a man now. In the eyes of the law and everybody else. And handed me a $100 bill. And first one said, if you ever need pounds of marijuana, just you get the money and you come see me. And if they don't want to give you the money, then you don't need to mess with them. It kind of surprised me. I'd never seen this man do anything illegal in my life. Never even talked about it. Then another man I saw, he hugged me. Hand me a hundred dollar bill and said, if you ever need ounces of cocaine or kilos of cocaine, whatever, you come and see me by yourself, bring the money. If they don't trust you with the money, you don't need to fool with them. It was the same. Heroin, marijuana, cocaine, all these legal drugs by these men that I'd known all my life. And you couldn't tell they weren't flashy. They didn't brag about anything, but it was there. It was just a means of making money so yes I think I was being prepared in one way or another for prison well needless to say I got into selling drugs started out with pot you know and then went to harder drugs before you knew it I was using them too but it's not intentional you know you you can say, well, you knew what you were doing. Yeah, but you know what? A lot of things were introduced to me, given to me, and I didn't have a choice in the matter. This is just the way it was going to be, and that's all there was to it. You know? Oh, well.
1986 was a real bad year. I lost five people that were very close to me, my grandmother and four uncles. So yeah, that was a bad year. I can't even begin to describe what I was going through. I thought I was going nuts, but I see now it was uh, PTSD, bipolar, depression, just anything you can think of. I had it because I just didn't care what I was doing, how I was living. And they said I was trying to kill myself. I said, no, I love life. He said, boy, you're taking heroin. Worst drug there is. Putting in your body with a needle the worst way you can. And you're telling me you're not trying to kill yourself. Well, I guess I was. But after that, after 1986 and 1987, 88, 89, and 90, it's a blur. I was doing a lot of drugs and going in and out of jail. Not prison yet, just jail. That's when I started meeting these men, these capital murderers, but they were just normal people to me, and they we got along, okay? Who did I meet first? James Bigby. Yeah, James Bigby. A friend of mine, Jason Andrus, he introduced me to him. We were in a lockup together in Tarrant County, Tarrant County Jail, you know, a single cell for various reasons. He was, James Bigby was red light status, for the high-profile case, capital murder, you know, it was a death penalty case, so they were keeping him segregated. And me and Jason, we'd been acting up in the jail, and that's where we wound up. I think it was 25G or 25H. It was single cells. Anyway, so we're there together, and, and, and Jason introduced me to him, and, you know, we'd sit up at night just talking, you know, the regular jailhouse conversations first girl we banged, first car we stole, first store we robbed, and so on and so forth. You know, and late one night, we were just up by ourselves, me, Jason, and James, and um, by himself, he started talking. He told us that, you know, he's working. Jason already knew the story, but he trusted me enough where he sharing little bits and pieces about he worked for Lay's, potato chips lace chips and uh he got hurt and there were some people there that lied and said that he didn't get hurt he was just trying to get money and he got screwed over and he said they benefited he said a few months after they screwed him over like that they were driving new vehicles so in his mind they got paid for lying about him being injured so he went nuts and he hurt some people well he said one of the men he shot, he didn't know that that man was bathing his child and the child accidentally drowned, and he regretted that. He didn't regret killing the adults, but he did regret that child being killed. And like I said, it I don't judge people at all. You know, I've known some mass murderers, and oh, well, you know, it ain't my, it, I don't judge you know, as long as they ain't trying to kill me, oh well. You know, a lot of people go out there and you do stupid shit and you get what you deserve. You know, but, like I say, man, he's, he's dead now. They gave him the needle, so if people just think he deserved to die, then he is. He, he got what he deserved, but we were okay. You know, I can see something going down like that because when you feel just cheated and burned and and, and, and you're tired of it because it's been happening over and over again. You just snap, man. You just snap. And that's just, that's life. You hear me? That's just the way it is.
then in 1990, I'd already been in and out a couple times, I'm sure, um, I wind up in lockup again, and there's Jason again, and we catch up, and, you know, he'd been to prison and back, and he's locked up on his way back again. I was on my way for the first time going, and uh, they brought in the new uh, inmate in lockup with us, and it was David Herman. We'd heard about it. He, uh, they said he robbed Lace, a topless bar strip club in Arlington, and killed some people. So he came in there, and you know we we already established, you know everybody in there knows each other. And after a few days, he started talking and wanted some TV time. He wanted to watch a few things on television. So yeah, you know he fit right in. But he was standoffish. He didn't talk with us much, you know. He respected me. He liked to talk to me because I was educated and I watched Jeopardy every day and and anything educational, that was what I was into. So we would have uh, conversations, you know, decent conversations, not just about crime and women, which dominate the conversations in jail, but about, you know, things that matter. The one time that he did speak about his crime he was in denial. He just said that ex-strippers, boyfriends had done it and they were trying to frame him or something. But, I mean, it was it was obvious that one of the survivors said it was him. But, like I say, you know, to each his own. I've owned up to everything I've ever done. Everything. In 97, while I was locked up in Texas prison system somewhere, no telling what unit I was at, I heard they had executed David. You know, uh, they said he tried to kill himself the day before he cut his throat. They ran in there, got him, took him to the hospital, sewed him up, saved him so they could execute him the next day. That's Texas for you. Now I want to talk about Servando Panchicano. He's a good friend of mine. We grew up together. We've known each other since middle school. And... He just died a few months back in prison. And he did 31 years on the capital murder case that he got in 90. And he died. In 1990, I was back in jail. I was now, I, was, I think I was already sentenced. I was on my way to prison for the first time. And I'd already got out of lockup. I was doing a lot better in my right mind, I think. I was clean and sober for one thing. And I was a trustee, so I was able to move all around the jail and there was a guard there. Well, I'm not going to say his name. He was he was all right. He was cool. He, you know, he, he treated people like humans in there. Anyway, we'd go out and just sweep and, and bullshit and talk. And uh, when they brought Servando in, because they extradited him from Arkansas, you know, he had kidnapped and raped and murdered a couple of women. And, and, and one of them lived and one died and, and they got him and, and they brought him back, and you know, and all this surprised me because I know this guy, and he's a good-looking guy, and he ain't ever had trouble getting women. And uh, all of a sudden, he just started, you know, abducting and raping women. So I, I you know, you know, it it plays the part that when we got to talk, and I only get, I only get five ten minutes a day to talk with him once he was in jail because they had him segregated too. Same thing, red light, high-profile case. He couldn't be in the population. But uh, I'd get to go back there and, and talk to him. He told me, man, he said, don't let these people poison your mind, Bobby. I ain't done everything they say. Well, 
if you've done just half of what they said that was still you know i mean we grew up in an area where we 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 did our thing we hit licks we made our money or whatever but there were certain things that we didn't do and you know and and, and rape you know that that was one of them that's the main thing but you know he told me that uh when he was in prison, the first time he had went, see what happened was Savannah was normal, just a good old neighborhood kid like everybody else. And uh, he went out to commit a crime and uh, they broke in the house. They found a gun in the house while they were in there. And then the owner came home and surprised him and they shot the owner. Well, it just so happens the owner of that house was an assistant district attorney. Yeah, he was a prosecutor and they caught Savando. How he didn't get a life sentence, I have no idea. I think his family had a little money. They got a lawyer. So, if you know, if you got money, you, you can buy down the time. If you ain't got no money, you're going to do a whole lot of time in Texas anyway. So, he told me, you know, he got 15-year sentence. And he told me, he said, say, Bobby, the first day I was there, he went to Cofield Unit. The first day he was there, some Mexicans hollered at him, said, hey, man, you're Sally." That dude that lives in that cell you're going to, he's a piece of shit. We want you to whoop his ass, drop him, whatever you got to do, get him out of here. So, you know, Savando, if you'd have seen him, what he looked like back then, thin, skinny, quiet, you know. So he said, well, what am I going to do, man? I got to do it. So sure enough, he gets in that cell and he whooped, he said he beat the shit out of that dude. And they got him out of there. Sure enough, they got that guy out of there and he thought, He's thinking he's going to be in good with these guys now. Well, it really didn't make no difference because a day or two later, he said he went and took a shower and he's in the shower over there by himself just washing up and some guy just walks right over there, stands there, starts looking at him and just starts masturbating. And I was like, damn, what'd you do, man? Did you knock the shit out of him? He said, man, that dude was so big, I knew he'd beat the shit out of me. So I just turned around and just started jacking off on him too and i was like what he goes yeah man and after that he just kind of laughed and left and that was it that was all he talked about that but it makes me wonder what if anything else happened because i'm telling you as soon as he got out he started abducting and raping people so something happened so once again it's somebody i knew in a, an event something happened and there's no turning back and it's too late you know it's just that quick his life was over just that quick you know you think you're gonna go steal something make a little money or whatever and then something happens unexpectedly and everything changes and if you act wrong your whole life is over poor Servando, you know 31 years in prison, then he died. I don't know what he died of. Who knows? Boredom? Sick? I don't know. Rest in peace. The last person that I met that was on death row already was Manir Deeb in 91, 1991. I was in Johnson County. That's Cleburne, Texas. Uh, I was on my way to prison. And he was back on a bench warrant off death row. He... Uh, got a change of venue and he was there well before I got back there because see they had him in uh, lockdown also segregated because he was a death row inmate and he couldn't be in general population also so 
now I'm in general population and there's a, a lot of people from Houston there. Harris County was overcrowded, the county jail, and they were contracted out to other little counties in Texas. And a lot of guys from Houston came to Johnson County. It was crazy. I met some good guys there. So we're back there and uh, some new Spanish guy comes in. So we found out it's Gilbert Melendez. He was back on a bench warrant too. He just said he was here for a new trial. He was trying to get a time cut. He had a life sentence. So, okay, and man, this dude was weird. I don't know how long he'd been locked up, but every day when he took a shower, he would, you see him walk to the shower with a container of baby oil and a picture of Madonna in a cellophane, waterproofed, right? He said that was his wife. Anyway, so I'd got in trouble. They threw me in lockdown there in Johnson County. And uh, so I met Manir Deeb. And after I got to know him, you know, I found out that uh, Gilbert Melendez was there to testify against him again. So Manir had been on death row for a while. He'd got a degree in political science and he got a degree and he was a paralegal. So he did all the legwork and got himself a new trial. And man, he had, a, you talk about a lawyer, Dick DeGarren, one of the best lawyers in Texas. That's who they'd retained for him. So we, man, we were back there about two, three months together. I got in trouble. And after I was back there with him, I didn't even want to go back to population no more. Plus he was teaching me Arabic, you know, Anthe Jamila. That means you're beautiful. And Ismek Jamila. That's, what's your name, beautiful? Toy, oh, I, I almost mix Vietnamese. I know Vietnamese, Yiddish, mm, Arabic, Spanish, English. Well, anyway, so, but Manir was good. He was a cool dude. OD was all right. And once again, this dude, I don't think he was capable of capital murder. Or he, he wasn't accused of it. They said he hired some people that David Wayne Spence and the Melinda's brothers he hired them to kill an employee because supposedly he had an insurance policy. Whatever. It was a bunch of bullshit. Those dudes used him to try to get a, a, get out or a time cut. The dude was not a criminal. Trust me. And we're back there. And, and like I say, man, the dude was all right. So that was in 91. I ended up going to prison. And I get out. And I'm only out like three or four weeks. And I get locked up again. While I was going to court. I saw Deeb. He was in Fort Worth. They changed the venue again, and they were in there uh, doing the jury pool, going through the jury and uh, crossing out, scratching people. And I didn't get to talk to him, but I saw him. He ended up getting a new trial and won and was released from prison. I think by knowing all these men that were convicted of capital murder and most of them sent to death row and executed. It had an effect on me and, and not nothing where it hinders me from functioning or moving on with my life, but it made me think about a lot of other things. And when I started writing, it came out. It bled through in my writing and I didn't want it to.